Safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Treatment. Condoms. Sexual attraction. Sexually transmitted infection. Health. Sexual health. Specialist. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. This podcast is being released on Hepatitis Awareness Day 2022. While the new Hepatitis C treatments often get a lot of attention at this time of year, in this podcast we'll be taking a closer look at Hepatitis B. To speak about who Hepatitis B affects and the model of care that we offer here at Sydney Sexual Health Centre for our Fibroscan clinic is Anna Gray. There's a lot of stigma still out there. And that could be one of the reasons patients don't disclose. I'll then be joined by YL Sabri from the Multicultural HIV and Hepatitis Service to discuss how they work with affected communities. But from their point of view, they are coming to a new country. They want to find out a house. They want to rent. They want to have their kids at schools. They want to learn English. So really, these our issues is not their priorities. Finally, I'm joined by Rachel Lian. A Hep B positive speaker from Hepatitis New South Wales to discuss her lived experience. It is easier to understand why people have the fear as they think Hep B virus can be transferred from one person to another easily. But first up is Anna Gray. Annick is a clinical nurse consultant who runs the Fibroscan Clinic here at Sydney Sexual Health Centre. So welcome to the podcast, Annick. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and what interested you in working in sexual health? So my name is Annick Gray. I am a clinical nurse consultant. I started in sexual health in 2015 at Liverpool Sexual Health Centre. You know, some people come into medicine or nursing thinking sexual health is what I'm going to do. This is my pathway. Whereas for me, I kind of fell into it. So I applied for a job in Liverpool and didn't really get it. And after a while, I eventually got it, applied for a job at Sydney Sexual Health, which I thought was the shining beacon of sexual health in New South Wales, eventually got in, which was a real eye-opener, really, for me, because the staff here, the training, the level of autonomy is amazing, which I really, really enjoyed. I don't really do very well when I'm bored, so in sexual health, there's always something to learn. There's new things to get your head around, there's new research you know, there's clinical skills you have to learn, things about leadership or implementation. That's what really kept my interest in sexual health and hopefully for a few more years to come. This podcast is being released on World Hepatitis Day and we're focusing this year on Hepatitis B. So what is Hep B and why is it a concern? Yeah, so Hepatitis B or Hep B, it's a viral illness that attacks the liver. In some instances, chronic Hepatitis B can lead to liver scarring, often referred to as cirrhosis, liver cancer, and in death. Um, on a personal note, uh, my uncle, back in Bangladesh, so I'm from Bangladesh, he died uh, close to about 10 years ago now from hepatitis B, yeah. complications related to hepatitis no, sorry, B. So, yeah, it is, um, you know, it's, it, it's a big problem. So around the world, there's about 300 million people, according to WHO, who have been diagnosed or living with chronic hepatitis B. And this is why the WHO considers this is a major global health problem. I guess close to home in Australia, around 220,000 people are living with hepatitis B, most of which are from overseas, born overseas. We do have a decline in chronic hepatitis B prevalence, 
amongst mainly amongst people under the age of 40 due to the growing vaccine program around the world and certainly people who are Australian born who have access to the hep B vaccine we don't really see them progress to chronic hep B in this clinic or in Australia. There are exceptions of course, Aboriginal people are still disproportionately affected by hep B. So it is still a global problem that we need to address. There is a very simple and effective vaccine that's very, very effective at over 98% that can prevent the transmission of hepatitis B, which is in Australia given at birth and throughout childhood as well. Of course, this podcast is all about sexual health. So do we see much transmission through sex here at the clinic? Or how is it more commonly acquired? So hep B is most commonly transmitted through vertical transmission. So mother to child. And this is the reason why we have high rates of hep B transmissions in, in countries with low vaccination rates and low testing capacity. Okay, so we know that infants are about 90% more likely to develop chronic hepatitis infection compared to adults who are around 10% likely. So going back to the question about sexual transmission, so if you have someone who is in contact with hepatitis B through sexual transmission, the chances of acquiring hep B and then clearing it is much higher. One way a colleague described the infectivity of hep B is it's 100 times more infectious than HIV and 10 times more infectious than hep C. So if you look at, say, for example, needle stick injuries, HIV risk is about 0.3%. Hep C is about 3%, whereas hep B is about 30%. Okay. Okay, so when it comes to quantifying the risk for sexual transmission, it's quite hard to do. Mm-hmm. Because although hep B is found in all sexual fluids, as well as in the blood, and is classified as an STI, it generally requires a cut in the mucosa to enter the bloodstream. So that's why it's hard to quantify the sexual risk. And I guess going back to the WHO's message, we need to kind of prevent it from mother to child transmission, with vaccination, testing, etc. Yeah. And we offer vaccinations to populations that might be at risk here at SSHC? Yes, exactly. Everyone that comes to SSHC, they are, if they're at risk of hepatitis B, they, we test them at the initial visit. And if they're a priority population for us, we offer hep B vaccinations for free. Mm-hmm. People who come in with STI symptoms that are not generally part of our population, priority population, we provide them with information that you don't have immunity to hepatitis B from this blood test. We would urge you to go to your GP and get the three courses. And it's over a six month period and it's relatively cheap. You run the FibroScan clinic here. What is a FibroScan and how do patients find the experience? FibroScan is a non-invasive procedure which is similar to an ultrasound. What it is is a machine that measures the hardness of the liver using sound waves. If a patient's liver is harder than it's supposed to because of fibrosis, because of what hep B has caused within the liver, then the sound wave will travel faster because it travels faster through a harder medium. If the liver is soft and supple like it's supposed to be, then it'll take a bit longer. So that's essentially what it's measuring. Um, And the effects of hep B on the liver, it 
causes fibrosis and that can cause complications. The fibrous gown in itself isn't used solely for a patient's diagnosis or management. It is used in conjunction with other tests. So a blood test to check the liver, we get an accurate family history to see if the patient has any cancer in their, in their, in their family, whether it be the mother, the father, the siblings, also the patient's ethnicity. All right, but we take into account their diet and everything else as well. So putting everything together, we create this holistic picture of this patient and give them information about changes to their lifestyle, whether they need medication at this time, how often we should follow them up and what further tests we need to do. And do you get much feedback from patients about their experience? Generally, it's, it's well received. And for patients who are nearly diagnosed with Hep B, they really appreciate the support and the follow-up and they may have a lot of questions. People who have been diagnosed overseas, they may come in with preconceived notions of what Hep B is or it's just, you're just a healthy carrier is a very uh, common phrase that we, we hear. Uh, often people will have no blood test, no follow-up in their country or very limited testing and they don't know where they are and they're not given information about their lifestyle. We're very fortunate to have a dietitian at SSHC and we have referred some of our patients who have had B to the dietitian to talk about what food is good for you, how to keep your liver healthy, what foods to avoid, things of that nature. And are there any challenges in encouraging people to test for Hep B? I recently went to a dinner for doctors working, for Bengali doctors, or doctors working in communities with high, high Bengali populations that have hepatitis B. And one of the things that were discussed was stigma around disclosing to A, someone who is potentially in the community, and B, just Hep B in itself. Some great research coming out of University of New South Wales about older Asian people living in Australia and their stigma around Hep B growing up and to the point where family members would not eat around them because of fear of getting hepatitis B. So there's a lot of stigma still out there and that could be one of the reasons patients don't disclose. What are the issues around testing as well? testing in different settings and when it's appropriate to test for blood borne viruses. There's still, that needs to be a lot of work done and there are a lot of people who in SESLED and other parts of health are working quite hard to kind of bridge that gap and, and reduce that stigma. And what would be your advice to a GP or other health professional who has a patient living with Hep B? I guess it's important to be culturally sensitive when it comes to approaching topic of hepatitis B and other bloodborne viruses. A lot of people don't like to talk about it because of stigma and fear of how the community is going to treat them if it gets out. Mm-hmm. Starting off your consultation or going into the consultation with a bit of sensitivity and understanding that this could be a, a sore topic. Not for everyone, but for some people it's, it can be. As I said previously, the hepatitis B uh, generally is stigmatised, so that that kind of stigma can be passed down through generations. So if, if your grandparents have had it, they've seen how your grandparents have been treated or your parents have been treated and they'll, they fear that they're going to be treated in the same way if it gets out of the community. So it's important to understand that, understand that approach in a, in a clinically sensitive way. 
Quite fantastic. It's been really interesting hearing a bit more about Hep B and the populations that it occurs in, as well as the Fibroscan Clinic at SSHC. So thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. My next guest is Wael Sabri. Wael is the Senior Community Engagement Officer at the Multicultural HIV and Hepatitis Service. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. And nice being here. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and what interested you in working to promote health with multicultural communities? Mm. That is really a very interesting question, Uh, Tom. You know, like I never thought and I never kind of planned to work in this area. So it was entirely by accident. Years and years ago, I was volunteering with a project which you know about, with the Ankali project. And that is to provide, you know, emotional support mainly for people living with HIV, their parents, friends, families, whatever the case. And from there, a person joined us, you know, and she, after I met with her, and she came as to the same group where I was with that, with the Ankali project. And after the first meeting, she came to me and she said, oh, well, and I said, what? She said, I think you need to go and come and work with us. And I said, what is that? And then she told me about multicultural HIV service. And from there it went, you know, and I never looked back. And it felt very much, it's it's like my, it's, it felt so natural for me to be there, to work in an area like the social justice area, to work with the minority groups and, and being of a, I don't like the word can't, to tell you the truth, but being of that, of cultural background, which is like from, I mean, like from the culturally and linguistically diverse background myself. So it felt so natural and it felt very distant that I am there. Yeah, nice. It's always nice when, you know, I've worked with you for quite a few years in different capacities, but I've never heard that story before, so it's nice to... Yes, yes, yes. And I always have a very kind of soft part in my heart for the Ankali project. Why do multicultural communities need specific services? And what are some of the things that need to be considered when approaching discussions around HIV and hepatitis? This is really our bread and butter. And and when I talk about our bread and butter, talking about from the multicultural HIV service, and in effect, it should be the bread and butter of all the health services. Because like when we, I don't like discriminating between different communities, you know, because any, any single person, wherever they live, wherever they are, whatever they are from, with culturally, linguistically, religiously, ethnicity, they are part and parcel of our society, and period. But then, why do we need special service? You see, uh, coming from a different cultural background and being here in Australia now for more than 30 years, so I can feel it, I know the differences and the difference between cultural outlooks and cultural belief system and the impact that has on one's own health. So when we talk about the relationship between culture and health, there is an absolute close relationship. There is kind of cultural belief system about how health should be, what we should eat, whom we should speak to, how we should uh, treat diseases. They might be not scientifically approved, but that's the cultural way. Hence, 
that's really quite important for us as health providers to consider that, especially when we go and promote health issues, to see how we can talk to these communities and how we can be culturally appropriate. So that is one area. The other area, you see, especially like, for example, when we deal with new arrivals, hmm. refugees, asylum seekers, and like you and I, we work in health issues, and they say HIV, hepatitis, or whatever. We have our agenda. We want to raise the awareness in the, I mean, among these communities because we know I mean, they might engage in risk activities. So we need to go and actually say, well, hang on here. But from their point of view, they are coming to a new country. They want to find out a house. They want to rent. They want to have their kids at schools. They want to learn English. So really, these, our issues is not their priorities. So in a sense, we need to see what is their priorities and work with them into that. Another issue, uh, Tom, language. You know, language, English is, is quite uh, to be proficient, to be able to actually manage, uh, to navigate with English can be absolutely hard. And I'm talking here about my own personal experience. I came as an international student 30 odd years ago, and I came to do a postgraduate at New South Wales University. Hence, my English was okay. Despite that, it is not an easy thing to actually start thinking and processing thoughts the way as the local people. So what I'm getting at here, English language skills can be a bit of a major barrier for us accessing those communities. And also how the service providers perceive a person coming and speaking to you in an accent. Straight away, they think, oh, do they understand me? And sometimes you will find that people will raise their voices and speak loudly and slowly as if the person in front of you is either they, they are dumb or stupid. They don't get it. But in fact, that's a huge insult. It's another, another issue, you know what, Tom, even the issue we talk a lot about confidentiality. The perception of the word confidentiality might vary from one culture to another. Mm. Particularly, if you have a community who came from a war-torn country author, under authoritarian regimes, and then with the, and they, are, they come here and they, they face the government, you know, say, oh, well, everything is confidential. But from their past experience, their governments or their regimes never respected that issue of confidentiality. So that's an issue. Another issue is, for example, uh, the, the term counseling, you know, support. You know, when we want to provide support and counseling to different uh, family members with certain issues, like perhaps HIV positive people or uh, hepatitis B positive person and so forth and so on. Counseling sometimes is viewed as an outside thing because you don't go to a professional and actually uh, show your dirty linen. These things are, you, you talk about it only with the family. So again, it is a foreign concept here. So how to provide that? Another issue, it is to look at our own health system. We have really a very complex health system. Just simply to go and, and go inside the hospital 
and to find where is the world, where is that section, you home to speak to. We have we have reached a situation where our health system is so kind of vast and complex. It needs kind of someone really aware how to navigate different area of our health system. So is having a GP or, or that sort of first contact? Totally important, totally so. important. Like when you go and, and speak with different communities, where do you get your health information? Their first thing will be their GP. So GPs are, and I dealt with GPs from different cultural backgrounds, they have an enormous pressure on them, apart from their patients. Everyone wants a, a bite from them. <laughs> and everyone wants to use them. So yes, the GPs are really important as first contact. They're family members, they're religious leaders, they're community activists, they're community leaders. I mean, what we call champions or people that influence within that community. Right, and this podcast is focusing on hepatitis B. Mm-hmm. What are the main communities you work with to promote information about hepatitis? Oh, good. Like I personally, in my role, I've been involved, have been involved with quite a few communities. I worked with the African communities in hepatitis B in particular, Arabic community, the Korean community, Vietnamese, and currently working with the Mongolian community. So these are like just what comes to mind, really. I suppose some of those communities, um, we've had some challenges sometimes getting an interpreter for yes. some languages, like especially Mongolian, can be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose more broadly, uh, how do you work with these communities right. uh, by going to them, I guess? Right, right. That's again a very important question and very interesting question. The way we work here with the Multicultural HIV Service and the Multicultural HIV Service being in business you know, in this area for uh, almost... Uh, since 1991. So we are talking about, what, 30 years now, you know? Yes, 31 years. Uh, The the strength of this organization, you see, like we work with the communities and we employ staff from those communities. And, And they work with us on a casual basis. And we continuously train them be with them and involve them in any project which we work with. So basically, we have these people to be our extension in the community. So that is the first thing which we do. The second thing, we totally, we before even we design, we do design the, the plan or the project, but before we implement or any of that stuff, we go and consult. We go to community leaders, as I said. We go to religious leaders. We go to community, grassroots community organizations, workers. And we let them know this is what we would like to do. And this is what we would like to, how we are going to do it. What do you think? And we will be backward forward and to design the, the, the work plan to suit at that particular community. Second step. We go in and, and then... Design, establish advisory group from that community, you know, to make sure that all the strategies which we designed that actually they are implemented with the cultural appropriateness always in our mind. Like how we do it. We got to do this. Do we go to the radio? Do we go to the mosque? Do we go to the temple? Do we go to the church? Which church shall we go to? Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, 
the, the Ethiopian church or the Sudanese Coptic church or the Egyptian Coptic church. So there are so many, or to the Greek one. So it depends what we do and how we do it. So, so that is what we do. And other, other, and other, then when we actually agree and de- on the design of the work plan with them, then we start doing it. One of the things which we do is actually going to the communities where they are, provide information sessions, workshops in language, which means we have to design all the programs in language using our cultural support workers in this and having them actually provide the workshops, which means from our side here, we need to train them, equip them, make them kind of good in their presentations, in their language, in the subject, and so on, and so on, and so on. You see, some often we go to where the communities are and be there when they have social activities. For example, you see, during Eid, you know, after Ramadan for the Muslims, they will have big, huge festivities. So we could go and have a little stall there in a very appropriate way, you know, and give some presents that come with some information about any issue. Or go to the lunar year with the Vietnamese, Chinese, and Korean, and so forth. So that is one of some of the pro- I mean, programs which we do often with most projects. Another one which we do, and we have been doing it really successfully, we go and, and work with the ethnic media, whether it is radio, whether it's newspaper, and now social media. We design and, and produce radio dramas about that particular issue. And again, the radio dramas, we invite, we invite radio script people, actors and from the community. You know, of course, we had to get the approval and all of that stuff in partnership with different radio programs. So they'll broadcast it. The last one, which I have done just a month or so ago, a major Vietnamese radio drama, which was broadcast on SBS radio for three episodes. Each episode was 15 minutes. So I can go on and go on. I mean, we produce uh, resources. You know, again, by involving the community and community leaders, community activists in whatever we want to to produce, because our aim always, Tom, you know, is towards the end of the day, for me, I just, the aim is not the resource itself. The aim for me, that resource is being used by the target group. So how can I ensure that? To my kind of where I come from in terms of work by involving them from the beginning. So that co-design process sounds totally, like a, really, a totally. really good approach. Yes. So so when you're working with communities, what are some of the concerns that you hear from them around hepatitis B or, or other bloodborne viruses? Well, about, about hepatitis B, I mean, that is the concern which I get first to start, like... There is, I mean, like, they, they know, but they don't know, mm-hmm. you see. And hence, for them, oh, where can I get this information? Where can I get vaccine? Where can I get testing? Mm-hmm. Uh, the issues of, is it, can I get it from 
drinking? Can I get it from being with a person, touching the person? So, so all of these are concerned. In the beginning, because as you know, and I know hepatitis B, especially with the symptoms, it's a very slow process, you know, but people sometimes, they know when we come, when we went to with the Vietnamese, the Arabic and all of those communities, deep down they, they have, would have heard about someone who had it. So, so it is, they say, yes, we want to find out more. We are producing a community wall calendar, you see, with hepatitis B messages. Okay. But I mean, when you think about it, okay, that's a calendar, anyone can do it. But it took us almost six months to finish this. Working with community? Perhaps. Totally. Totally, like like we went and and we we joined the community in their festivality. Like for example, during the, the lunar year, and and we got a professional photographer from the audiovisual here, and we went to their gathering, you know, and we started taking photos, explaining for them this is what we want to do. We would like their photos to appear on the community calendar. Are they okay? And this is for hepatitis B. So they had to sign their consent. So there was an agreement in doing that. And then we have an advisory group. After designing the lot, you know, we go to the advisory group, we say, this is what we are done. These are the messages with really very simple hepatitis B messages. For example, hepatitis B is a family issue, is a family business. Would like if you want to know more, go to this website with the four Vietnamese languages or call Hepatitis New South Wales helpline. You see, that kind of information. So our aim is really to raise awareness, talk about testing, talk about vaccination, talk about treatment and where they can go to know more about these things. You see, so when we finish this, we will involve the businesses, the Vietnamese businesses for the distribution. So we'll go to supermarkets, we'll go to GPs and that kind of stuff and say we are in partnership. We have already spoken with them and they are happy to be involved in that. And I guess it's always important for people to be able to see themselves in health resources as well and to identify with the messages. Totally. You hit it right on the nail. You hit the nail on its head, as they say. But when, when a person from experience, they see, they see people whom they know, oh, they say, oh, I know this. So it's already, the, um, I found that the calendar or that resource talks to the people. Mm-hmm. It's not designed from kind of stocks. You get it from the, you know, the internet and that kind of stuff. It is not at all. It is, I believe very much, you work with the community for the community. Mm-hmm. Then it will work. Yeah. So uh, this podcast is going after Hepatitis Awareness Week in 2022. Yeah. yeah. Is there a particular campaign that's being run this year? Yes, yes. I mean, always we, we, we run campaigns around in, in Hepatitis B and, and HIV and all of them, but in particular Hepatitis B, yes, we are uh, planning to run campaigns and that will be in like our main messages or venues of the campaign. We'll have ethnic media press releases, and that will be radio, will be print. You know, we will have spokespeople from different communities to be interviewed through that radio and in the print. We often organize specialists, doctors, 
to be our spokespeople or community leaders. We sometimes, if we are successful, we can organize interviews with positive people that can have really a good impact. Or again, the social media, you know, whether it is Facebook groups and, and so forth and so on. Then also on our website, there's always other kind of fact sheets. We also often are involved and pro- we provide our kind of support to mainstream services where they do their activities, where they target their the, the cult communities within their area. So we have our casual support workers from these language groups. They will be there whether it's in stores, whether they are distributing information, that kind of stuff. And it's really important for all of us, all of us, all services to work together. So I would like to say thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and then hearing about some of the great work that you're doing. So thank you very much for coming along today. Pleasure. Thank you again. My next guest is Rachel Liam. Rachel is a speaker with Hepatitis New South Wales who will join us to discuss her experience of living with Hepatitis B. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to have a chance to share my Hepatitis B live experience here. When I was 23 years old, I came to Australia from China for further study. I decided to stay in Australia after graduation. I'm married with four children. The youngest one is four months old. So at the moment, I am fully occupied with housework. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and how you became involved with Hepatitis New South Wales? So the first time I got to know about Hepatitis New South Wales is from my GP from Auburn Medical Center. She referred me to join a hepatitis patient caring program held by Westmead Hospital. And one of their recommended health resources is from Hepatitis New South Wales. About two years ago, I attended one liver education webinar held by Hepatitis New South Wales, and I was interested in the speaker's program, giving people affected by viral hepatitis opportunities to talk about their personal experience of living with Hep C or Hep B. I grabbed the chance, and I'm happy to be one of the speakers so far. When did you first discover that you were living with Hep B? I have no idea when I got Hepatitis B, I was too young to remember when my mom took me for blood test. My mom is all clear of happy virus. Later, we found out my father has chronic happy. Probably I got it from my father. And do you find that there is a lot of stigma surrounding happy? So how have friends and family reacted when you told them? Yes, there's a quite a lot of stigma about Hep B, especially to someone who don't have the related knowledge. It is easier to understand why people have the fear as they think Hep B virus can be transferred from one person to another easily. What they are not sure are the correct ways it transfers and it can be prevented effectively. I have experienced that People saying they wouldn't dare to share food with me and wouldn't consider having a relationship with a happy carrier. I'm lucky to have my family to care and love me in their bottom hearts. I still remember that the first time I told my husband that I had happy, I said, 
I'm sorry that I didn't tell you earlier, as I am so afraid that I will lose you. But he returned me with pure love and understanding. He said, "Don't worry, it is not your fault, and I love you as the same." So, what do you do to stay healthy living with Hep B? At the moment, I don't need to take medication. In order to stay healthy, I always have a healthy diet, such as eating nutritious food, obtaining more protein, vegetables, and fruit, but less salt, fat, and sugar. Also, get exercise and adequate sleep. Last but not least, try to avoid alcohol on any occasions. To monitor with my happy, my GP always reminds me of having blood tests and ultrasounds every six months. This is reports will tell in advance if something goes wrong. If a situation gets worse, I know I will have to take medication. It might be lifetime medication, but they are pretty safe to apply. You do some work as a speaker with your community for Hepatitis New South Wales. What are the main concerns you hear from people in your community that you speak with? I often get inquiries from people on how to take care of themselves, their liver after hepatitis B diagnosis, what they should do to their loved ones, such as family and friends and their workmates. On the other hand, how to live with people who have viral hepatitis from their families. They have a concern. On whether they would be infected if living together. What would be your advice to someone who may be worried about going for a Hep B test? It is better to know the situation as early as possible for your doctor to give you the proper treatment. I used to have the concern about my privacy and any stigma after diagnosis. Actually, it is not necessary to worry. Healthcare workers in Australia know so well their duty of care. Your privacy and confidentiality well kept, and Hep B test is important for doctors to work out the diagnosis and treatment. There are many effective ways nowadays available to keep people with Hep B living a healthy and long life. Okay, thank fantastic. you, Tom. Yeah, thank you for being on my podcast today. Thank you. Hepatitis New South Wales is launching a trilingual hepatitis B booklet with stories from Chinese and Korean community members, which have been translated into English. This great resource is being officially launched by Dr. Carrie Chant, and I'll link to some more information about the story writing competition that led to its development in the podcast description. So go check it out. This has been the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast for World Hepatitis Day 2022. To stay up to date with the latest information in sexual health, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like the podcast, please share and subscribe.